Good morning. If you can take your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, when Pastor said he was going to be away, he told me that I would be preaching. And uh, he told me the day, and I was like, stink, it means I can't stay up and watch the ball drop. It means I can't do any of the uh, get-togethers because I'm going to be too tired. Um, but probably the more daunting task that he gave me was he said I had 25 minutes. <laughs> We're going to shoot for it. Anyhow, uh, we want to go uh, and uh, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, it started in the process of my studying. I started in verse 18 down through the rest of the chapter. Um, and then as I started looking at this passage, uh, I didn't know how to describe it. It's like trying to, to dig out a plant so that you can present a beautiful flower to somebody. And the more that you dig down, you realize the roots just keep spreading. Um, this passage does that. It really just dives into the entire book. And so when I was talking to my wife last night, she asked what all I was going to be preaching on. I was like, well, chapter 1, and part of chapter 2, and 3, maybe chapter 4. She's like, you can't preach the whole book. It's like, okay. So this morning, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an outline. Um, as we come and we see Paul's teaching uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and really it's going to be an outline that you're going to have to take home and fill in as you keep on studying those roots, as you keep on following where all it spreads throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and I encourage you to do so. But when I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about preaching this morning, right away you had to admit that it's New Year's. And so there's an understanding that at this time of year, what do most people do for New Year's? They make what? New Year's resolutions. I personally... I struggle with it. And yet I understand the value of it. There's a reason that companies take time throughout the year to stop and they evaluate. They take stock in their inventory. They evaluate where their funds are, where their supplies are, where they're making money, where they're losing money. And they crunch all the numbers and they evaluate their past year and then they make goals and they set changes for the next year to try to improve. And that's really what our Christian life is like. And New Year's is such a fun time for me because it just reminds me of the blessing that God gives us a fresh start each and every day. He says each and every day His mercies are anew. And when we come to a new year, that's normally what many of us think of. A new beginning, a time to start over, to wipe the slate clean, and to be able to start afresh. And so we make those New Year's resolutions. And we try to... Keep up with them as long as we can. For whatever amount of time we set, or maybe we're ambitious and we want to make it for the year, those are really good things to do. And I would like to challenge us today as we reflect on one's last past year, and as we reflect on one's purpose, and as we look at setting this year's goals, I want us to remember what our purpose is. And Paul is going to dive into that through means of correcting an issue that the Corinthian church has, that he lays out some elements that we need to be reminded of when we start to evaluate our life, our past year, and where we are going to go for the next, few, uh, the next year. 
And so I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'd like to read through the passage because I'm not going to be able to go through and look at every single word, but I want to make sure we're looking at God's Word and we evaluate the whole passage. And so I'd like to read the whole passage before we start here. And we're going to read uh, starting in verse 10. I'll try to shorten it a little bit, but we'll, we'll read verse 10. Really, the introduction plays really well into this also. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, I'm going to be reading from the ESV just because uh, for my dyslexic brain, uh, the teens know, uh, but I'm really easy at switching words and all that. And I was trying with the King James and the New King James, and it was just a real hard ship for me to get all the words out. And so I'm going to read out of the ESV today. Um, bear with me. I still might uh, switch around the words, but I think it's a little bit easier. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrels, quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for uh, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, because uh, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of life in Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, or sorry, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." As I started thinking about New Year's resolutions and, and how we evaluate that, I think it's just obvious in our world today, and I hope as we go through this that it is obvious to you that 
the standards that we hold as precious as Christians to the world seem foolish. They seem weird. They seem unimportant. And we have the pressures, especially in our society today, as we evaluate our setting our goals for this next year, it is easy to get caught up with this question of, am I going to seek foolishness or wisdom? And I say that in the context of, am I going to follow the world's wisdom, which is considered foolishness, or am I going to consider God's wisdom, which the world considers foolish? You see, as we look at setting our goals and our purposes for this next year, we need to evaluate, as we evaluate our last year and we plan the goals for this year, we need to reflect on our purpose. And what do we need to remember when we reflect on our purpose? As we evaluate Paul's instruction to the Corinthian believers and his, actually his uh, confrontation to them and instruction to say, I'm going to correct an issue that you have, we find three elements that we need to remember that impact our purpose. Three elements that impact our purpose. And as we look at, at the idea of purpose, many businesses, they, they set up a purpose statement. This is what we are about. And in college, one of our professors made us do it as individuals. And to me, it was the most foreign thing in the world. But he sat down and he gave us like three weeks and he said, come up with a short, concise statement that is going to summarize what your purpose is. And I spent a lot of time and I looked at a bunch of different purpose statements and I thought I did a great job and then I got a terrible grade on it. But I'm going to steal the purpose statement that we have here at church just to give us an idea of what we're talking about. Our purpose statement here at Faith is we seek to magnify our Maker by mimicking our Master. We seek to magnify our Maker by mimicking our Master. That is what we say as uh, what is our purpose. It dictates everything that we do. And so as we look into this next year, and as we set our goals, we need to remember what our purpose is. Because if we don't know what our purpose is, then we don't know what requirements are going to dictate, what parameters are going to dictate what decisions we make for the next year. And so as you evaluate your purpose statements, and if you don't have one, I'd encourage you to work through the process of developing one. If it comes out a paragraph, fine. I'm not giving you the parameters that it needs to be a sentence. But as we evaluate it, we need to remember our purpose. And Paul is going to give us three elements that are going to help us develop what that purpose is. The first element that we need to remember is our support. And by that I mean the church. Paul is going to spend a large majority of the book of 1 Corinthians dealing with divisions among the church. Right here in chapter 1, he starts off by, by encouraging them to make sure that they are of one mind and of one, um, basically, heart. That they are unified. And he right off the bat, he says, I've been hearing these, these statements that you are not unified. In chapter 3, he's going to go on and deal with it again. Chapter 4, he's going to deal with it again. But right away, he says, we need to remember our support, the church. As he describes later, it's the body of Christ, the believers. Throughout the letter, Paul is going to address obvious divisions within the church. In chapter 1 here, he looks at it and is who you are following. 
They were following different people based on their baptism or based on uh, who introduced them to the gospel. He says, some of you claim to be following me. Some of you claim to be following Apollos. Some of you uh, go after Cephas. Some of you just claim to be following Christ. You've cornered the market on Christ. You are the followers of Christ. And he says, no. Is Christ divided? Did you get baptized in my name? And he makes the argument that it is essential for us to understand that in Paul's mind, unity is not only desired, but it is essential in the church. He says, no, you need to work at being of one mind. Paul understood that our Christian life is not meant to be done on our own, but that God has purposely put us in a church. He deals with these divisions, and yet in Paul's mind, he is not dismissing the fact that we have differences. He deals with the social standings and the differences that they have with the IQ differences, the financial um, standings of the individuals he's writing to, the educational differences that they have. He's not dismissing the fact that we are different. But instead, Paul is also not dismissing the fact that we have different strengths and weaknesses. But instead, in, in chapter 12, he takes this idea and these truths that, yes, we are different, and he says that there is a diversity among the body of Christ, and that is essential for us to function properly, to have our fullest potential. And so Paul looks at it not as a weakness, but he actually looks at us and says, because each and every one of you are different, that means that we can minister to one another differently and in ways that each of us need, so that all of us then can be built up and grow. I am really glad that not everybody here on staff has to be a Pastor Burgraff, because we would all fail. And yet we need a Pastor Burgraff here. But we also need a Pastor Kim who can greet anybody that walks through the door and within a few seconds share the gospel. Same as Pastor Binkley. He did the exact same thing. We have individuals here that are really good at communicating with the teens or with the kids. I'm still jealous of how well Pastor Art is able to communicate to some of the teens. Why? Because he's gifted in that way. And yet I can understand that, wait, It's not a problem that we are all gifted differently. And actually it is a benefit because I can't reach all of you. But I can reach some of you. You cannot reach everyone here. You may not be best friends with everyone here. But yet you are placed in this body to benefit all of us. And you have strengths and gifts and purposes that are beneficial, that are essential for the body of Christ to work properly. That's what... Paul argues and emphasizes in chapter 12. He actually gives this silly example in chapter 12 that what happens if all of, he gives us the physical body, he says, what happens is if all of our parts were an eye? We'd be really good at seeing, but we'd fail horribly at a lot of other tasks that we have to do. What if all of us were a nose? Then where would our hearing be? If all of us were ears, where would our walking and our hands be? It's a silly illustration. Why? Because when we look at our body, we understand right away that we need every part of our body to work properly or it doesn't work. We have difficulties. It doesn't perform to its max potential. The other week, I don't know what I did, but I pulled something right in my back, like right in the shoulder blade. 
Oh, it's been bothering me for like two weeks. Chelsea would be like, what's wrong? I don't know. Something's out. It's just pulling right there. Came into the activity the other night. We did an all-nighter for the teens. Um, Aaron, I think, right away was like, what's wrong? I was like, I don't know. Something's out still. It's just bothering me. Why? Because when one thing is out of place or not functioning properly as a part of the body, the rest of the body understands that. It feels that. It has to work harder and overcome difficulties. Guess what? The same is true within our body of Christ, the church. Paul understands that there is a support that comes through the unity of the body of Christ. And throughout the book, he's going to address it a lot. He started with the divisions that come through baptism. He's going to move on to moral and ethical um, problems that were in the church and the divisions that were caused because of that. He deals with spiritual gifts later on in the church. And guess what? The whole point of, of spiritual gifts in chapter 13, 14, it is for the edification of the whole body. And he says, if all of you spoke in tongues, guess what? It wouldn't be of any value because no one would understand what you're saying unless there's an interpreter. And it misses the point. What is the point? It is to edify and build up the body. So even the abilities and the gifts that each of us were given by God, hospitality, encouragement, administration, all of those are meant to be able to build up the body of Christ. And we need every one of those parts to do so. He's going to talk about communion, which we're going to celebrate later today. Paul talks about, and he sees... There's division that is happening because of the way that you're practicing communion. And so you need to change it so that there is a unity within the body. Why? Because the support of the body of Christ is important. And I think it's been easy in our society and in our culture and since COVID and for a plethora of other reasons that we can become so isolated that we forget the body of Christ. And really all we're doing is hindering our potential and our growth. Yes, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is the one that changes us. But part of what He uses is you sitting here, ministering to one another. The iron sharpening iron. We had uh, standing in the foyer, had a conversation this morning. A great conversation. Asking questions that probably all of us struggle with. That I've struggled with. And just looking at different passages, and I was encouraged by the Word of God. Why? Because someone came up and asked a question. We strengthen and build each other up. Please, 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 don't forget in 2023 that we need each other. That God has placed you here at Faith Baptist Church for a reason. And it is to be built up by others, but also to minister and build others up with the weaknesses and the strengths that we have. So we need to remember as we evaluate our purpose that the first element we need to remember is the support that Christ has given us in the body of Christ. In Paul's mind, this unity is not only essential, but it is required in the church. In chapter 3, he goes on to say that envy, strife, and divisions that are among you, they prove that you are a carnal Christian. That you are acting like the world. And he looks at you and says, you need to grow up. He points out the division that is among us and he says, no, it is wrong. And yet it is easy for us to sit here and to make our groups. And yes, there's some really natural things that 
form a group. And yet, as the body of Christ, we are to be ministering to everyone. It doesn't mean you need to be best friends with everyone, but there shouldn't be divisions among us just because this person decides to use, you know, this, this commentary set, or they listen to this speaker, or this podcast. They maybe listen to this music, following God's principles, but it's different than what I listen to, and so I'm going to go hang out with this group instead. That shouldn't be the case. We should be ministering together and having a unity, as Paul says, around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our second element. The second element that Paul reminds us of is that we need to remember our foundation. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He spends the bulk of chapter 1 arguing the fact that it is foolishness to the world that Christ came to die on the cross for us. And so he develops this concept of the the gospel and how it is foundational to each and every one of us and how it is because of the foundation of the gospel that then we can have unity. He says these divisions are among you, they shouldn't be. And so he develops this concept of the gospel. What is the gospel according to Paul? I can tell you what it's not really easily. What is it not? In verse 12, um, in chapter 1, he, he goes on to describe the different people that they are following. They're following Paul. They're following Apophis. They're following, uh, not Apophis, uh, Paulus. Um, they're following Cephas. Okay? Some are following Christ. He says, you know what? The gospel is not based on who you know on who you hang out with. The gospel is not based on our works or our zeal. He says some of you were baptized by Paul and some of you were baptized by others. Guess what? That didn't save you. And he actually finishes in the end of chapter 17, he's, or sorry, verse 17, uh, verse 17, he states, what was my purpose? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul understood the importance of baptism, but he knew that it was not essential for salvation. It was not the gospel. He says, your good works, they don't count as anything towards your salvation. Being born again, the gospel. He says, not only is it not your works, but it is not your personal abilities. Throughout the whole passage, he keeps on saying this idea of worldly wisdom. The, Jew, the Greeks, they thought they were wise. And it was foolishness about the gospel. It was the idea of being able to have a standing within society based on how well you could argue or how much you knew. He says that doesn't, that's not what the gospel is about. He says it's not because of the family that we have. He says whether Jew or Greek in verse 24, you still are one in Christ. I am so glad that it is not based on what family I came from. I love my family. But ultimately, I'm not a Jew. And so if it stayed within the Jewish race and we had the restrictions of the Jewish race, then we as Gentiles would be left out. But that barrier was taken away. And so it is not based on our family, on what race we are. It's not based on our education or our IQ. It's not based on our social status, verse 20 through 26. He argues that whole point uh, that where are some of you that are wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? God has made it foolish, the wisdom of the world. He says it's not based on what we know or how many degrees we have. That doesn't earn us salvation. That is not a part of the gospel. So what is the gospel? 
Paul basically says the gospel is not a sales pitch. He came not, um, he came not to uh, persuade us in the sense of he is going to twist us into uh, making a decision to, to follow the gospel. But he wanted a genuine conversion. A genuine work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so he goes on to describe what is the gospel. What is the gospel based on Paul? It is based in God's character. His holiness and righteousness means that he is perfect and cannot dwell with sin. God is perfect and cannot dwell with sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. It's the idea of dwell with sin. God, because of His holiness, cannot dwell with sin. But we also see God's justice. And His justice, justice dictates that one day He will judge and demand payment for every sin. He is going to judge us. He is perfect in it. That means He's not going to let sin just slide away. He is going to judge it and demand a payment for it. But His love motivated Him to provide a substitute that could take our punishment. Because of God's love, He developed a way for us to be forgiven. And it is because of His mercy and His grace that He allows us to temporarily, or allows Him to temporarily withhold His wrath, giving us time to respond. See, the gospel is based on the character of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. He doesn't develop that in this text, but he knew that. But then he goes on and he clearly states. It is based on the work of Jesus Christ. That's his whole argument in chapter 1. It is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. So what is that work? Christ crucified. I wish I had time to develop all of this. But if I can boil it down, because Paul looks and says, it's not based on how eloquently I convince you of the gospel, but is based on the power of God's work in our life on the cross of of Calvary. Paul believed that Jesus Christ, because of love, came to earth, was born as a baby. He lived a holy life, and therefore, he could be the perfect sacrifice. The Jews already had the sacrificial system. They understood that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. But Christ came as the perfect Lamb of God, and He was the once-for-all sacrifice that could atone for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. In 1 Peter 3.8, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul understood that the gospel was wrapped up in this very simple fact. That Christ loved you. And because he lived a perfect life, he could be the perfect sacrifice for you on the cross of Calvary. He was nailed on a cross, and he paid for my sins, and he paid for your sins. And then he was buried, and three days later he rose again, proving that he had beaten death and he had beaten sin. And that God had accepted his payment. And so we could have forgiveness of sins. But he says it is based on those who call upon him. So what does this all mean for us? 
We understand that we're a sinner, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand that because of our sin, we deserve death, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We understand that because of God's love for us, He offered to forgive us and pay our debt for us. The end of chapter 6, verse 23 in Romans says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 5, 8, he says, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. That Christ came to save you and he paid for your sin. He paid your price already. And so what do we need to do? All we need to do is accept the gift, to call upon Him. We have the gift of eternal life that is freely offered to us if we simply, in faith, ask for it. Romans 10.13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was the message that Paul was preaching. And he says, That message seems like foolishness to the world. To the Jews, they wanted signs. They wanted the conquering Messiah, and instead they got a baby who grew up in an obedience, humbled himself to die on a cross. That wasn't their idea. They wanted a king. And so for them, it was foolishness. For the Greeks, they wanted the wise person. And who in their right mind would trust a crucified Savior? That just doesn't make sense. And yet in the foolishness that the world saw as the gospel, God proved His wisdom because it was the only way to atone for our sins, to be a substitute sacrifice that we could have righteousness and Christ would take our guilt. In verse 30, Paul shows how it changes our life. He says, referring to God, He is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. What does he mean by that wisdom? Referring to our salvation. He says, and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our righteousness, the fact that we were declared righteous, we had a right standing before God. Our sanctification, it is the ongoing work that Christ is perfecting us. It's not going to be completed until we get to heaven, but God is actively working in our life to make us more like Christ. And He gives us the Holy Spirit to help. And then it says our redemption. The word redemption has the idea of being bought off the slave auction block. We have been freed from the power of sin so that we can live for righteousness. That is how Paul sees us when we accept Christ's gift of salvation. Before God, we stand righteous, declared righteous. He is working in our life to make us like Him. And He is going to complete it because He has bought us from sin with His blood. That is the power of the cross. And to the world, it seems like foolishness. And yet for us, what a joy. Because we've seen that power we see how Christ has changed our life. And so Paul gives us this example that when we are looking at our purpose, we need to remember the foundation that we have, and it is the gospel. 
In 2023, we need to remember that we have been bought with a price, therefore we need to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are His. And so we have called, we have been called to live a holy life because of the work of Christ in our life. And so it should dictate how we live, what our goals are for 2023. And lastly, the third element that we need to remember is our instruction manual. And I'm not going to go into a lot of depth with this one. But throughout the whole passage, Paul continually comes back with the idea that this seems like complete foolishness, how Christ chose to save us. The cross seemed like foolishness, but really it was wisdom. And God used the simple things to, per, to just confound the wise, to put them to shame. He used the weak things to put to shame the mighty. Why? Because when we evaluate and we look around at the world, it is easy to look and say, the following the Bible is foolishness. But in reality, it is wisdom. This goes beyond just the gospel. There's so many passages we could look at. But it is the idea that God's Word is wisdom for us. It is what lights our path. It is what gives us wisdom and instruction and prudence to know what is good and evil and what decisions we should make. In chapter 2, Paul uses it as a sign of mature, a mature believer. Chapter 2, verse 6. And in Hebrews 5, he described, or the writer describes a mature believer as this. Hebrews 5, verse uh, 12. For uh, though by the time you ought to have been teachers, you needed someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You needed milk, not solid food. For uh, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their power, uh, powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The writer of Hebrews describes a mature believer as one who can look at Scripture and apply it to their life. And so my biggest challenge for you this year, and where you need to go home and do a lot of study, is in the aspect of we have the instruction book. It's God's Word. But the question is, is are you going to use it? Are you going to use it? I like playing games. How many of you love getting the instruction book out and reading it? Okay? Like none of you, right? Some of you do. Okay? Normally when I get a new game, I play it by myself because I know if I can't explain the game in 30 seconds to my wife, she's not going to want to play it. Okay? Half the time, what do we as men do when we get instructions, especially when we're putting something together? We pull it out and we throw it to the side, right? Who needs that? We don't need it. Well, we're going to figure this out. And then it's only about 20 minutes later that you realize, yeah, I kind of needed those instructions. We were setting up for the reenactment, and uh, Pastor Art got new lights this year. And I could not figure out how to get these dumb lights to work. I was like, ah, I know better than this. This remote's not working. Why is there two boats? It's like, where's the instructions? So I had to confess to Pastor Art later. I read the instructions to figure out how to work the remote. What made me laugh is he said, yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> Why? Because normally we don't. But I fought with it for probably about five, ten minutes before I decided, I'm just going to go read the instructions to figure out how to work this thing. Now, 
I have new games. Right on the back, it says right away, hey, don't read these rules. Reading is the worst way to learn how to play a game. Instead, go online and watch our instructional video. <laughs> how simple it has gotten for us. We have such information at our fingertips that I think we have fallen into a trap that we just try to do it on our own. But God has provided instructions for us. And when I was thinking through this concept of what the world views as foolishness and what really is wisdom, I realized, you know what? There's certain things in life I spend a lot of time researching. I enjoy hunting. I spent a lot of time researching how to hunt so I could learn how to do it efficiently. And I thought I got it last year, and then this year I saw nothing. And I'm right back to square one, thinking I don't know anything. I got into archery this year, and it's like, okay, I'm going to spend a lot of time researching what setup I should use to hunt as far as what type of broadheads, what type of arrow, what weight, and there's a whole discussion on it, and if you have any input, I will take it. Um, But I think I know what I want, but I spent a lot of time doing it. Why? Because it was important to me. Because I knew I was going to make mistakes if I didn't. And yet, how many times do we throw the instructions out when it comes to God's Word? When it comes to teaching our kids about money, we can teach them about savings. We can teach them about setting aside for retirement, of investing, trying to make money work for yourself. But the world looks at us and says it's foolishness that we would give part of it back to God. Who in their right mind would do that? And yet God says, no, that is what is wise to do. To remember that I am the one that's providing it for you. Working diligently. Scripture says we're to work diligently as unto the Lord. Culture, society, why do we need to do that? This is owed to us. I'm, I'm just going to call off when I want to. Foolishness to the world. And yet there is great wisdom in being diligent worker. Marriage. Wait, I'm going to stay pure, or pure before and during marriage? That's just ridiculous. That's what the world views it as. Wait, I'm going to be committed to work on my marriage no matter how hard it gets? That's foolish. No, that's wise. And when God's Word says that we should do it, it is for our benefit. Yes, it takes a lot of work, but it is well worth it. It doesn't always seem so when you're in the midst of it, but as you start looking behind you, And realizing the hardships that you were saved from, the joys you were able to enjoy, it was worth it. Raising kids. Yeah, foolishness. No, God says it's wisdom to evaluate the principles of God's Word and say, yes, we are to be raising our kids and instructing them in a way that is pleasing to God so that we can help them grow in their relationship with God. When does that end? world says 18. When does the Bible say? I don't know. Why? We can look at it and say foolishness. No, we're supposed to be involved in our kid's life. Career choices in college. The world says, look at the money. Look at where you can get an easy job. Foolishness? To consider the spiritual impact it's going to have? To consider the spiritual impact of which school you go to? The influences? The teachings you're going to receive? 
We can look at sports and say, yes, I'm good at it. I should go for it. But at what cost? It is easy for us to just throw out the instruction book of God's Word. And yet Paul employs us, implores us, and begs us that we would return to our foundation of the Gospel. And that through wisdom we would exercise what God's Word has said. Chapter 2 talks all about that. That the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can understand God's Word and apply it to our life. We need to remember that we have been given the instruction manual. And it doesn't just sit on the shelf, but we should be running and studying it. Just like any hobby that we really enjoy. If it is important to us, we should do it. For many of you, for some of you I should say, you would look at retirement and you would say it is silly for somebody not to plan for retirement. And you might even get upset at it. But when have we put so much stock in our spiritual retirement of our heavenly reward? We can work really hard at the physical one here. But we need to work at the spiritual one. So in 2023, don't forget to go to the instruction manual. All of this to say, as we look at this last year and as we plan for the next What is our purpose? It is stated in verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May we as a church, may we as individuals seek to magnify our Maker by mimicking our Master this year. By remembering that we have a church that is a support, that is a help. That we have a foundation in the Gospel and therefore that it dictates how we live And we have the instruction manual to live a life that is pleasing to God. Dear God, I pray that you would help us this year to grow as individuals, to grow as a church. That we would set goals that are pleasing to you because we're evaluating how we're supposed to be involved in church and the unity and how we build one another up. We evaluate our our foundation of the gospel and how it has changed our life And as we seek to follow your instructions in the Word of God to live a life that is pleasing to you. I pray you'd help us to do that. That this year, that we would be able to look back and realize what Paul has said at the beginning of the letter. That these things are true in you. That you have been called. That you have been redeemed. That you have been um, conformed. You will be conformed into the image of God. That God is working in your life and in your heart. That's exciting that God is involved in our life. And I pray you'd help us this year to be able to see that clearly as we follow these steps of saying, what is my purpose and what is my goal for this year? We thank you for your word. I pray you'd help us to love it, to live it, and to share it with others. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.